0: Questions of identity are the dominant discussion in our culture. Uh, we talk about constructing our identity, affirming identities. Our politics revolve around identity. And this obsession with identity really comes down to the way we want to present ourselves to the world? Uh, It it answers the question. Who are you? So before we go any further, I want you to think about that. Who are you? Max Dupree was the uh, longtime chairman of the Herman Miller Company. I only know about Herman Miller because I used to listen to NPR in college and they would always sponsor things and they would talk about Herman Miller, the maker of the Aeron chair. And so Herman Miller makes office furniture, and uh, it's really world-famous. Max Dupree was a longtime chairman of their board, and he told the story about how one community's identity shifted in Nigeria in the 1960s. Uh, when they were first bringing electricity to remote villages, every hut received one light receptacle and one light bulb. And pretty soon, as the people started to enjoy the technological advances that had come their way, the people who used to gather around the fire every night and tell stories, began retreating to their own home to sit around the glow of an incandescent bulb. On the one hand, it's really it's incredible progress. On the other hand, it started to reveal a terrible loss, that that community-forming time around a campfire was where The elders shared stories and history and values that defined them as a people, that that really constructed their group identity. And peoples, tribes, nations, we, we have shared identities, things rooted in a common past. And so when we talk about the Revolutionary War, we all as Americans have a certain thing that comes to mind for that. And so it's part of our shared history and values that gives us the identity of Americans. Uh, Businesses have identities. Businesses like Herman Miller and the place you work has values at least plastered on the wall, whether they show up in the day-to-day operations or not, I guess is a different issue. Churches have corporate identities. Families have identities. Cities have identities. And each of us has a unique identity, something shaped and informed by our environment and as everyone who's ever been a teenager knows, also constructed painstakingly through the music we listen to, the clothes we wear, the things we post on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We're constructing an identity always trying to let the the world know who we are. So who are you? The problem is when you're in a Nigerian village or a central Texas city or an ancient Israel location, Your identity is always open to influence. And I assume, since you're here this morning, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, sitting in a church service, at some level, your identity reflects your relationship with God. That you're at least a churchgoer. I'm I'm the kind of person that goes to church on Sundays. Uh, I'm a member of Central Baptist Church, or I'm a Baptist. I'm a believer. I'm a person who lives for Jesus. You know, this is part of your identity. And since it is, I have to warn you that your identity in Christ is under constant pressure of a fallen world. And if you're not careful, and I'm talking about if you're not on your toes, your identity in Christ, who you are as a Christian, is liable to erode and collapse under it. It's an insidious thing that happens bit by bit. And if we're not careful, we end up where ancient Israel was. Now, it may not be the pagan idolaters living around us who do us in. It may not be light bulbs. But the desire to fit in with our classmates, with our co-workers might. The desire to be successful at work, or the insatiable thirst for money and pleasure. All these things erode a little bit at a time, chipping away our sense of identity in Christ. The Bible treats each of these things, I I think about them as identity obscuring temptations. The Bible treats each of them, the hunger for wealth, the hunger for power, the, the sense of finding our identity in the people we hang out with, or we ...are in relationships with. All these things the Bible treats under one heading. Worldliness. And worldliness is an attitude and a disposition of our hearts... ...where our thoughts and intentions aren't directed towards God... ...and the things that matter for eternity... ...but towards the world. The things that seem to matter most in the now time. So we want to be on guard against worldliness... How it chips away bit by bit. And the book of Ezra gives us a wonderful warning of what happens to runaway worldliness. And this morning, this is what I want you to leave here knowing. You can shun worldliness and act on the faithfulness of God. You can shun worldliness and act on the faithfulness of God. You know, if you've been here last week, you, you know we've been thinking about the faithfulness of God. Last week we saw that God's faithful to His people he always fulfills his promises. And in particular, we saw how he fulfilled his promise given to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Right before they went off into exile, he told them that they were going to spend 70 years in Babylon. But eventually, he'd bring his people back. And that's exactly what he did. Through the uh, Persian emperors of Cyrus and later Darius, uh, God sent his people back to Jerusalem and provided for them as they reconstructed the temple and reinstituted temple sacrifice hope you remember how the people rejoiced, and that sort of motivated your rejoicing on Thursday as you thought about the faithfulness of God in your own life. Now, the temple was, for the ancient Israelite, a core component of their identity. It was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth, and because the temple was there and they could see it and enter it and worship at it, they could draw near to the presence of God. It solidified this sense that so they were chosen, they were unique because they alone had God in their midst but between chapter 6 which ends with rejoicing the beginning of chapter 7 57 years go by and a lot can happen in 57 years some of y'all know that a lot can change in 57 years and the rejoicing and the sense of a fresh start that the people had with God sort of fades into memory and their distinctiveness as the people with the temple, as the people who had God's presence among them starts to sort of get chipped away. Their unique identity falters. And it wasn't until, chapter 7 tells us, God started working again. And through a new Persian king, Artaxerxes, uh, God brings back his law to his people. And he does it through a man named Ezra. And Ezra is one of those Bible characters that you really ought to do a study on. Go online, find you a book, and and think long and hard about Ezra. He was a totally unique individual. The great-grandson of the last high priest who was killed by Nebuchadnezzar when he destroyed Jerusalem. A man totally committed to God's law and God's way. In fact, uh, Ezra 7.10 tells us that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel few years ago, I stumbled on that verse, printed it out, and put it in a picture frame. Listen, that is a goal for the Christian life. Not just to study the Bible, but to practice it and then to hand it on to others. That's Ezra. Not just listening, not just learning, but practicing what God's Word says. And because of that, he was totally equipped, the perfect candidate for the task that Artaxerxes gave him. Artaxerxes' plan was to allow certain autonomy to the various provinces in his empire. He believes that each individual people had a God, and so they needed to do everything they could to live obediently to that God, and then the empire would flourish. And so Artaxerxes sent Ezra back to the Jerusalem, back to the promised land, with the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and told him to make it the law of the land. And so that's what Ezra did. He he came, uh, Ezra 7.25 tells us that he went to appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river. That's the promised land beyond the Jordan. Even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who's ignorant of them. So Ezra goes back with commission in hand to teach the people of God the law of God and to make it the law of the land and to enforce their obedience because Artaxerxes was smart enough to know that when God's people live obediently to him, they're going to flourish. And so that's what Ezra did. Ezra 8 tells a miraculous story of the people making a three-month journey, averaging about ten miles a day to get to Jerusalem. And uh, when he gets there, he does what he's told to do. Ezra 8.36 says, He delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river. So they get the edict from the king, start governing according to God's law, and presumably Ezra informs them what this law is. He takes time to instruct them in the highlights, the bullet points of what God's law requires. And when he does that, when he reads, when, when the rediscovery of the law takes root in the land, these officials come face to face with their worldliness. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. They hear Ezra reading the law or instructing them in the law, and they bring a report to him. And they say, hey, listen, we hear you. We understand this is the law of God, but you should know we're going to have some work to do. They say in Ezra 9, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands, Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. I mean, Ezra says the princes came to him, that the rulers of the people come to give a report of their worldliness, and by their own admission, they say they had put their identity as God's unique people at risk by intermarrying with the peoples of the land. Now, I don't know which passage from the first five books, the Torah, the law, Ezra instructed them from. Uh, There are several passages in the Old Testament that speak to the purity of God's people and the prohibition against intermarriage with the peoples of the lands. But there's an interesting thing at work here in the nations that are listed in Ezra chapter 9. And if you're a reader of the Bible, you've come across a list very similar to this before, I'm sure. You know, that can kind of like, you kind of almost chuckle, think, have they forgotten the termites, you know, and all these things. And it's kind of silly, right? Who are these nations? But these nations aren't, aren't from nowhere. These were the original nations who lived in the promised land, the land of Canaan, except for the Egyptians. These are the, these are the nations that were living in the promised land when Joshua led the people on conquest. To take what God had promised his people. And so if you put all the list of people, uh, names into your Bible software or into Google, one of the closest hits is going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I actually think that's probably what Ezra instructed them in. Deuteronomy 6 uh, begins a sermon preached by Moses on the, the plains right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. And it begins with something that's famous and and loved by the people of Israel and even recited by Jews today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the constitution, the marching orders for the people of Israel as they enter the land to take possession of what God had promised them. And and listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following Me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He'll quickly destroy you. But thus shall you do to them. You shall tear down their altars, and smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. For... You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God had clearly commanded His people. I mean, it's pretty clear. It's uncomfortably clear. We read this as modern people with Geneva conventions, and we see all this, we think this is right. This is jihad. This is all-out holy war. And we're uncomfortable. But that's what God clearly says. He clearly commanded His people not to intermarry with the nations inhabiting the promised land. Not because the descendants of Abraham were racially or ethnically superior. But because their unique identity as a people chosen and holy, a people for His own possession was at stake. He knew it was impossible for them to be romantically involved with pagans and not get pulled into their idolatry. And so he told them, don't intermarry. It's aimed at preserving nothing more than their exclusive faithfulness to Yahweh. And so when the officials heard, I don't know if it's Deuteronomy 7 or what passage it was, but when they heard it, they felt like they were in a spotlight, under a microscope. Because the very thing God had commanded, the very thing God had forbid, they had done. And so if you're concerned at all about worldliness, you need to know that God's word is going to reveal your worldliness. Ezra showed up, spoke the law. The first thing that happens is people measure themselves against it and realize how badly they have felt. Well, I mean, what do you expect? The Bible says about itself that it was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. You know, we we read these historical narratives about Jesus and about Ezra and about Moses, and we really forget that these aren't fairy tales or legends, but that these are real-life people who were like us, maybe living in a different time and a different place, but they had hearts that were just as wicked as ours. And so when we read the Scriptures, we're not reading just some kind of record of what's happened in the past. We're reading the very words of God that speaks not just to ancient Israelites, but to every person who ever lived. That's why the author of the letter to the Hebrews can say the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between marrow and bone, examining the thoughts and intentions of his heart. And no creature... Is hidden from his sight but everyone is laid bare and exposed before him whom we must give account that's what the word of God does it was created it was breathed out it was inspired by God for the very purpose of revealing to us our sin and so we should not be surprised when we read about Ezra or when we come to church and hear a sermon or when we try to have a quiet time and we read on our own we should be surprised when it exposes our worldliness And it's kind of a good thing. Isn't the worst judgment that can fall on anybody to not know what they don't know? What if God abandoned you in your sin? And didn't give you a perfect law which contains everything you need for life and godliness. What if His word wasn't here and you didn't know that you were a sinner separated from Him by your sin? What if you had no hope for salvation because the word of God had never been written? So the Bible exposes our worldliness, and as God's people, it draws us back into who we're meant to be. It tells us things like, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I love what Jesus said in Luke 11, beware, be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions love what Paul says, set your minds on things above and not on the things that are on the earth. And listen, hey, when it exposes your sin, it's a little painful. But at least you have an opportunity for repentance. And that's what God's Word does. It exposes our worldliness and draws us in to remind us of who we are. We are the chosen people of God. We're not going to read it, but 1 Peter 2 uses this same passage to speak of us, that we are a chosen race, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a kingdom of priests. So this is who we are. And just as Ezra called the people of God back to faithfulness through his word, that's what God does for us. He exposes our worldliness through his word. So I wonder, are you spending regular time in God's word? And we're coming up on the end of the year. Isn't that exciting? I think it's like 33 days until twenty twenty two. Think back on twenty twenty one. Were you in the Word this year? Were you spending regular time in God's Word? You're letting it expose you, expose your worldliness, expose your sin, we you letting it draw you into a deeper relationship with Jesus? I, I hope you were. You know the, our statement of faith says that the Bible is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. And some people deny that. Some people say, That's, that can't be. This Bible is so ancient, written by people so long ago, it can't speak to the issues we face in our world. And other people, they agree with it, but, but by our practical living, we show that we don't really believe it. That it's not the supreme standard. That other things are. And so, if you're not spending time in God's Word, you're not going to be exposed to your worldliness. You're not going to have your sin revealed. You're not going to have any hope of remembering who you are. So get in the Word. But after the officials bring the report, Ezra responds in the prayer that we read. A beautiful prayer. Uh, What an example of repentance, of openness before God. I mean, he already knows everything about us. So Ezra shows us the way to just lay a bear before him to admit it, to acknowledge it, to confess it. And I love how Ezra instructs us. He he, he tells us, worldliness is a sin that must be confessed and wept over. Look at at how he responds in verse 3. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Ezra was totally broken by the people's sin. I mean, his body gets in on it. It's not just a feeling he has, but he expresses his heartache in his actions. He tears his robe and his garment. Now, Some commentators think that Ezra's official title in the land of Israel as a commissioned representative of Artaxerxes must have been something like director of religious affairs or something like that. He's like one of the highest level people in the country, and his purview was religious matters. I think that's significant because when he talks about his robe, his cloak, his clothes, we're not talking about sackcloth. Probably some nice linen or maybe some silk. He's a dignified man. He's a government official. And when he hears about the people's sin, none of that matters. He tears his clothes apart, rips them from top to bottom. Then it says he he pulls out his hair and his beard. That's painful. And to inflict it on yourself... It's even worse. You know, we, we look at that and we're kind of amazed. Why would you do that? Why would you express your grief and your heartache in that way? But that's what Ezra reached for. I think it's pretty indicative of his spiritual condition, this word appalled. I was appalled. I was appalled. Your, your Bible may say something different. The, the verb appalled is actually the same word used to describe the aftermath of a terrible and brutal attack on a city. The silence that's left when all the clanging swords are gone and the buildings are torn down and the only thing that's there is the smoke rising from the ashes. The silence after a city has been totally ruined. That's what Ezra says he felt. That same kind of silence after he'd been ransacked and ruined with grief over the people's sin. He's appalled. To say he was lost for words is an understatement. He's broken. He's shattered. There's hardly anything left. I think the only explanation you can come to for Ezra's response is that as a teacher of the law, he knew probably better than anyone else the real cost of worldliness. And he continually in his prayer talks about iniquity, which is officially a crime or a sin against God. And it's iniquity that altered the relationship with their God, so it rendered them guilty. The relationship of being a treasured person made this separation after their sin. They were guilty. They were rendered guilty and liable to judgment. Ezra knew the story better than anybody. His own great-granddaddy got killed during the exile. So he knew what worldliness could cost people. He knew what worldliness had cost Israel 150 years before. He knew... That the princes, the officials who brought their report, had committed the very same sin that had led to the exile in the first place. And therefore, it would be totally understandable. And God would have been just to come out with exile part two. And so he just openly confessed the sin and wept. I mean, what else can he do? And I think... This fall, as I'm reading through this in my quiet time, it really jumped out to me how different Ezra's response to sin is to my response to sin. And if you broaden the scope, and I won't make it super personal, but if you broaden the scope, and just think about the Christians you know, how how do we respond to sin? How do we respond to the sin of worldliness? I tried to somebody said it. We don't. Oh, you yeah. I tried to come up with a different word for worldly. And for me, worldliness draws to mind the fundamentalists of the twentieth century who thought worldliness really was about going to the movies or dancing or listening to Elvis or whatever. So I wanted to find a different word. What else? I mean, that's not what we're talking about, is it? And I decided to go all in on the whole worldly thing. Because I think that's kind of the point. That I, I want to avoid the appearance of being legalistic, judgmental. I don't want to be a fundamentalist about it. But I'm totally unmoved by sin. I'm unmoved by worldliness. You know, we, we laugh. I laughed at my, my granddad. Never saw him wear shorts until he was an old man. You know, he'd always worn pants. Never, never show your bare leg. Now, I, you think about some of those things and you wonder about the motivation. And you see Christians who are a little bit more extreme about it than you are. And you applaud them. And you thank God for them and the fact that there are other people who approach the faith like you do. But you're, man, you're really thankful that you can listen to Elvis or Megan the Stallion. Or that you can go to the movies or watch Netflix and not feel any qualm about it. You know what I mean? Like, praise God, worldliness is something that stodgy preachers in starched collars talked about a long time ago. But it's no longer an issue for the people of God. And then you come to Ezra and the rest of the Scriptures. You see that worldliness isn't a cultural thing. It's not a political thing. Worldliness is something that gets out of the very core of who we are as the people of God. Are we in the world or are we of the world? James says it in Old Testament language. is the only way you can describe it. He says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or what about 1 John 2? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Worldliness is not some bygone catchword. It hits every generation. Hits every person every day. Now I wonder are you worldly? Do you find yourself drawn towards things that don't matter? Do you find yourself pursuing things that won't last? thirsting for water that can never satisfy, hungering for bread that never fills. If you looked at your browser history, your financial priorities, your time commitments, your work ethic, the way you treat your family, would it be any different than a non-church-going person or a non-Christian or a non-believer? Is it discernibly different? Do people know who you are? Do you know who you are? Who are you? Who are we? Are we children of the light? Are we the sons and daughters of God? Are we new creations in Christ? Is a spirit of holiness live within us. And yet weeping and brokenness over sin is foreign to so many Christians. But worldliness is a sin in every time and in every place and it must be wept over and confessed. We quickly notice what else Ezra's prayer tells us says, worldliness is a symptom of an ungrateful heart. I love what he says in verse 8. For a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. You know, at any, at any time in the history of Israel, intermarrying with the peoples of the land would have been on its face a high-handed violation of the law of God. You wouldn't have fallen into it by accident. It would have been something you knew you were getting into, and you did it anyway. It would have been despicable. But when Ezra got the report from the officials, he placed it in its context. Fifty-seven years before, God had proved His faithfulness to His people by doing what He said He was going to do through Jeremiah and bringing them back to the promised land. He had brought them through exile. He had restored their fortunes after He banished them from the promised land. Who did they think they were going right back to the same old sin. But that's what Ezra said they did. They were ungrateful. Did God's kindness not mean anything to them? Did His forgiveness shown to their parents and grandparents not matter? Did not it motivate in them some kind of desire to serve Him with a whole heart? And yet, here they are, doing the same thing they'd always done, spitting in God's face for the forgiveness He'd given them. And that's why I think worldliness is a symptom of an ungrateful heart. It fails to consider what the scriptures teach us about God and man. That God created man, perfect in his image, prepared a perfect place for him and placed him in the garden. Gave him every tree he'd ever want to eat. And he gave him one commandment. In In the middle of the garden there's a tree, knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Instead of enjoying God's benefits, the blessings of life in the garden, instead of receiving from Him with grateful hearts all the good things He'd made, Adam and Eve questioned His motives. They wondered what He was holding back from them. Of course, they were tempted by the serpent, but they they questioned His motives, wondered what He was holding back from them, wondering what more this tree could offer that the other trees could. Could not. And so they rebelled against God. They abandoned His way. They proved unfaithful to His command. And he banished them from the garden. Because of their sin, you know that every human being who's ever lived since has an inherited sin nature. Each one of us is born with a proclivity towards sin. So by the time we're eight or ten or twelve or old enough to know our right hand from our left. We start adding to their sin with sins of our own. And yet, God's love for His creation didn't change. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to live a sinless life, proving perfectly faithful and obedient to every command that God gave. And at the end of His life, He offered Himself up as a willing sacrifice for sinners. On the third day, God raised him up and extends the offer of forgiveness to everybody who will call on his name. Who are we? We're people defined by that message, the Bible's message, the gospel message. We're people saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's who we are. And yet I wonder, does the grace of Christ mean anything to us? I mean, what is the appropriate response to it? Is it a Thursday afternoon? November, once a year. Where we set aside time for grateful hearts and thankfulness. Is that what God expects from people who have received abundantly of His grace? No. Paul says, in view of God's mercies. So considering all the way that God has been merciful to you. The way that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the mercy that Paul talks about in Romans five one that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, he talks about in Romans 8 where we've received from Him the spirit of adoption so that our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. The one that says to us that before time even began, we were chosen, we were foreknown, we were called, and we are going to be glorified in Christ someday. That's the message that defines Our identity is it is it Thursday afternoon enough no in view of God's mercies offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God God wants us this is all what happens is we forget we take for granted the grace of God we forget what Peter says that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with precious blood. Blood is of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. The precious blood of Jesus, the Son of God who left glory in heaven to take on sinful flesh and die for me. The One who gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession zealous for good deeds that's the grace that defines my identity that's who I am a person so loved by God that even while I was an enemy he sent his own son to die for me you know when we live worldly lives we act like none of that matters that that grace is cheap and always on offer That all we got to do is just say the quick little prayer and then God's going to wipe away all our sins and we'll be fine but the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that people like that people who make commitments to Christ and go through the motions for a season but later abandon Him completely he says they trample the blood of Christ under their feet so worldliness giving ourselves to the things of this earth that don't matter at all stems from an ungrateful heart Which brings us to the last point, the good news, the hopeful point. If this weren't here, we just pack up and go home. What are we doing? Who has hope? But after chapter nine comes chapter ten, and this guy named Shekiniah shows up, and his his name means intimate with Yahweh, or one who has made his dwelling place with Yahweh. And I want you to hear what he says. Ezra 10. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And then Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise! For this matter is your responsibility. But we will be with you Be courageous and act. Ezra 10 is a beautiful and challenging conclusion to this wonderful story. And and Ezra doesn't pull any punches. They do a search throughout all the nation to find the men who have married foreign wives. And their names are included at the end of chapter 10 for all eternity. But it ends on a message of hope. That even though we have sinned against God grievously, We've been unfaithful to Him in ways that our forefathers could have never even imagined. Yet there's hope. There is a promise of repentance. Jeconiah's name is is fitting for him. Because he knew God apparently better than Ezra did. Ezra was fine to just sit and wallow in self-pity. And he had to have somebody come with good news and tell him, Get up and let's do something about it. There's still hope remaining. He knew that God was good and forgiving and abounding in love to all who call upon Him. And so Jeconiah said, hey, we've been unfaithful to God. He knows it. You know it. We all know it. What are we going to do about it? Jeconiah cast himself on the faithfulness of God. He believed that God wouldn't abandon His people if they would return to Him. If they'd confess their sins, if they'd repent, if they'd change, if they'd do the hard things necessary to conform to His way, He would return to them. He would bless them. He would restore them. And so at the end of the day, well, none of us can claim to have kept ourselves unstained from the world, which is the second half of James one twenty-seven: pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I don't think anybody in here has nailed that one. And hadn't stuck the landing on it. Because worldliness creeps in, gradually, imperceptibly, chipping away at the identity of who you are in Christ. But when God's faithful, He shows you in His Word where you've gone astray, we see it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're broken hearted over it, right? You see your sin and it tears you up. How could I have made the same mistake again? I just confessed this to God. I just pledged that I'd never go back on it. When you feel dirty and useless and worthless because of your sin, you remember what Paul told the Thessalonians. Hey, God's at work in you. He's going to present you to Himself pure and blameless. Faithful is He who calls you. And He'll bring it to pass. It doesn't depend on you. God's at work to do what He said He was going to do. When you're at your worst, you feel it. You see it coming. You know what's about to happen. You hear the word from Second Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy. Even when we are faithless, He's faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He so I know exactly who you are. The Bible says that if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins once, but now you've been made alive together with Christ, and you're seated with Him right now in the heavenly places. This is who you are. So shun worldliness. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. You've had plenty of time to walk among them. Shun worldliness and act on the faithfulness of God. You are a person saved by the grace of God, chosen in Christ, indwelled by His Spirit. You cannot imagine the love God has for you. So how are you defining yourself? Do you see yourself that way? Are you living that identity out in the world? Do people know? Can they see? Can they tell? This morning, shun worldliness and act on the faithfulness of God. Will you bow your head with me?